Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for uh, worshiping uh, with us on this uh, day before Christmas. Uh, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to share with you uh, this morning. Uh, back on November 1st of last year, so that would be 2022, uh, there's a publishing company by the name of HarperCollins. Some of you may be familiar with that publisher, but they, one of the things they publish is the, the Collins Dictionary. It's kind of like the equivalent of the, the Webster's Dictionary. And uh, what they do every year is they announce a word of the year. And so back in 2022, uh, their word of the year was a word that is called permacrisis. And uh, from HarperCollins' perspective, uh, you and I have been living in this thing called a, a permacrisis for quite some time. So let me give you the definition of it. Uh, it came into the English language back in 1975, so it's a relatively new word. It's an extended period of instability and insecurity, especially one resulting from a series of catastrophic events. And uh, when they released uh, that this is the word of, of 2022, they have a, a little blog. And in the, the blog, uh, they told us the reason why they picked this particular word. Uh, they said it perfectly embodies, and you got to remember, this is someone who writes a dictionary writing this, all right? Perfectly embodies the dizzying sense of lurching from one unprecedented event to another as we wonder bleakly what new horrors might be around the corner. Now, if you think about it, permacrisis pretty much uh, defines the world that we live in at the present moment. And it all started in 2022, or 2020, I should say. Uh, you remember the, the COVID pandemic, all of those unprecedented uh, lockdowns, you got social distancing, you got online school happening, you know, we're doing online church, you're working from home, there's one-way grocery aisles, you've got Zoom fatigue and mass fatigue. I, I personally, I had fatigue fatigue, I was so ready for it to be over. And if that crisis wasn't enough, you throw into the mix the, the rekindling of, of the racial strife in America, the chaos of the, the presidential election in 2020, uh, the events of January 6th, the, the economic turmoil that we have experienced with unchecked inflation and skyrocketing gas prices and rising interest rates, uh, coupled with uh, housing prices going through the roof and rental costs uh, being really insane. And then, then there's more. You've got the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You got the Chinese sable rattling that they're going to, to take Taiwan. You, you've got this October 7th attack on Israel, the subsequent war in Gaza. And then you, you mix all of that stuff together, and then we discover the inability of our government leaders on, on all levels, local, state, and, and federal, uh, to set aside juvenile, self-serving partisanship and take on mature, other-focused statesmanship so that they can do the hard work of collectively, together, finding solutions to these ever-cascading and escalating crises. That's where we're at. And it kind of makes you wonder, who, if anyone, will rise to the occasion? 
Who will bring deliverance and hope in the midst of all of the sin and despair that is in our world right now? But what we're experiencing right now isn't the first permacrisis. Because the, the annals of history, they're filled with permacrisis. If you just look at the 20th century, you, you start out, you've got World War I. That's supposed to be the war to end all wars. And then the Spanish flu comes, and the Great Depression, and then World War II. In the 17th century, Europe went through something called the Thirty Years' War. In the 14th century, there was the, the Black Death that, that wiped out countless numbers of people throughout the world. And then you go back to the 13th and 14th centuries, the, uh, the Mongol invasions and conquests. And all of these are devastating times in history. They're all times where, where millions upon millions upon millions of people died. And, and we think in this world right now, we're thinking that it's just bad now. It was bad back then. And not only did millions and millions of people die, the ones who survived, their lives were forever altered. However, none of those permacrises compares to the greatest permacrises of all. One that finds its genesis, surprisingly, in the book of Genesis. One that, that isn't merely physical, but one that is also spiritual. It's the permacrisis of sin. And it's painstakingly recorded in the pages of this book. And unlike the current permacrisis we're in, there is someone who rose to the occasion. Someone who brought deliverance and hope in the midst of sin and despair. And this deliverer, he was foretold some 2,700 years ago by a relatively obscure prophet by the name of Micah. Now, if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone, if you would find Micah chapter 5, we're going to spend some time looking at the first uh, five verses or so. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. Uh, just ask a neighbor to pass you one down or feel free to, to get up and, and take one. Uh, if you take one of the Bibles that's here in the room, I'll save you the time. It's on page 778 of the Bibles that we provide. Micah chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1 and the first part of, through the first part of first, uh, chat, verse 5. And if you were able to stand, if you would do so in honor of God's word, please. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, you, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, of ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, 
then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So here we have uh, this prophecy by this fellow by the name of Micah, who uh, lived approximately 700 years before the birth of Christ, and he was an eyewitness to the moral decline of the nation of Israel. During Micah's time, uh, Israel was divided into to two separate kingdoms. You had the kingdom of Israel in the north. You had the kingdom of Judah in the south. And because they were divided, they found themselves vulnerable to the, the pagan influences and the ultimate attacks of foreign nations, most notably uh, a, a nation that was called the Assyrians. And Micah, he saw the Assyrians ruthlessly conquer the northern kingdom. Not only did they destroy everything in their path, they they took the vast majority of the educated Israelites into captivity in Israel, left those who weren't as highly educated, who who they thought could be just left behind to, to rot in squalor in this destroyed area. And as he witnessed the horror of this, he realizes that that the kingdom that he lives in, the southern kingdom, is going to experience the very same destruction that came to the northern kingdom. But he also witnessed something else in the midst of all of this. Rather than the Jewish people turning back to God and coming together against a common enemy... You know what they did? They, they do what a lot of people do now. They, they, they double down. And they double down on their immorality, and they begin to exploit one another. Wealthy landowners are, are cheating the poor out of their property. Business owners are exploiting their customers, bribing judges, charging excessive interest rates. The, the governmental leaders, they're... they're de- depriving people of justice. They're calling that which is evil good. They're calling that which is good evil. Even the religious leaders of the day, they're caught up in in this moral freefall that's happening. The priests, they're setting up idols, and they're they're provoking or pushing their people to, to worship these false gods, while also telling them, as long as the Jewish temple stands in Jerusalem, we're going to be just fine. And at the same time, the prophets, rather than warning of God's judgment and the impending consequences of people's sins, are instead coming to people and saying, you know what? Everything is just fine. You don't need to worry about what's going on. Everything is perfect. There's not going to be war. We're going to experience peace. And not surprisingly, much of what the priests and the prophets were doing was because it helped them to make money. Now, Micah chapter 3, verses 9 and 11 through 11, give us a little picture 
of some of the stuff that's going on. Micah says this, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, which was also Judah, and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster should come upon us. Does any of that, does any of that sound familiar? Does any of that that look familiar? I mean, are we not experiencing some of the very same things here in this country that we love? Not only are the poor exploited by the rich, I've seen the poor actually exploit the poor. It's mind-blowing. Not a week goes by that we don't learn of a local, state, or federal government official taking advantage of their position or their influence. All you got to do is look at Penn Live or, or go out and CNN or MSNBC or five, wherever you get your news. It happens all of the time. How many times do we hear of a, a pastor or a priest engaging in horrific sin and sometimes dragging others into that sin? And all the while, there's no outrage. There's no turning from sin. Instead, the vast majority of people keep doing what they're doing, not realizing or, or perhaps ignoring the fact that God is a God of justice and that he doesn't turn a, a blind eye to sin and, and he will not be mocked. And my sin and your sin and the sin of our country, and the sin of the world, it always comes with a price. Make no mistake about it. The plight of Micah's day is not much different than the plight of our day. Now, this all sets the stage for what we originally read here in Micah chapter 5. You see, years and decades, and for that matter, centuries of unchecked and unrepentant sin have taken their toll. The lies, the bribes, the injustice, the violence, all of the idol worship, ultimately, it comes to a breaking point. You can only do it for so long, and something gives away. And in Micah chapter 1, this is what he tells the people. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Here we see the consequences of what, what Micah has been warning the people about. The reality of danger has arrived. The Assyrian troops have laid siege to the capital city of Jerusalem. And the people in the city are at a loss of how in the world do we actually defend ourselves now. When you read the words, O oh, daughter of troops, that speaks of the city's lack of their ability to, 
garnish up enough soldiers to protect themselves. They can't get enough people. And the striking of the judge of Israel on the cheek, that's a reference to what happens when when an enemy comes and and takes a nation and they come and they strike the king of the nation that was captured on the cheek. This is all very bad. The situation is filled with sin and despair. And there, there appears to be no hope. Everything seems like it's lost. And this is where some of us find ourselves today. We have gone years doing our own thing. Choosing to be our own God. Living for ourselves. Using other people, not only calling that which is clearly evil good, but but joyfully engaging in that very evil. And what has been the result? We look in the rearview mirror of our lives and we, we see this long trail of destruction streaming behind us. Broken relationships, broken trust, broken promises, and broken lives. And all the while, we have surrounded ourselves with our own choice prophets. We have a name for those prophets. We call them our friends who tell us everything that we believe And that everything that we do is just fine. We don't have to worry about it. But deep down, in places where we don't like to go, we know that these prophets that we put into our our lives, we know that they're lying to us. But we keep believing the lies. And we we keep pressing on. And and we keep diving deeper into the sin and into the process. Not only do we take ourselves down, but we take other people down with us. Thinking that we're invincible. But knowing one day, the enemy will arrive at our doorstep. And it's all going to come crumbling down. And we're going to be left with nothing but sin and despair. And if that doesn't describe you, I guarantee it describes someone who you care about. That's the world that we live in, brothers and sisters. And into this mess of sin and despair, Micah speaks hope not only to the ancient Jewish people, but he speaks hope to a room of about 400 people on Oakley Avenue in the 21st century. And this is what he says, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah comes along and says, all is not lost. That there is hope. There is coming a, a future king 
who will come and will rule and rescue Israel. And he's coming from an unexpected place. He's coming from this town, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah is a district in the kingdom of Judah. It's like a county. Think Dauphin, Cumberland, Perry. And Bethlehem is a little town in the district of Ephrathah. And it's a very small town. If you blink as you're traveling through the town, you're going to miss it. It is so small that when the Bible meticulously lists the cities of Judah in Joshua 15, and it's a long list, Bethlehem isn't even mentioned. But the obscurity of this future king's birthplace is not the only unique thing about him. We are told that his coming is from of old, from ancient of days. Now, now what does that mean? It means that the king, the rescuer, is coming in the future, yet he is from ancient of days. In his, in his commentary on Micah, there's a, a, a theologian by the name of Dr. Bruce Walkie, and he explains that the ancient Hebrew term, ancient of days, it can have one of two meanings based on the context that it's in. When ancient of days refers to some kind of historical event, it means from the remotest of times or, or from long ago. But when ancient of days is tied to God, it refers to God's everlastingness, to, to his infinity, to being without beginning or end. So when the ancient readers of this, uh, of Micah, they would have understood that what Micah is speaking of right now, this ancient of days, is the Messiah, the everlasting Son of God, who will come one day to save his people. But here, in the next verse, here's the rub. This Messiah's coming. But here's the problem. Therefore, he shall give them up. That's the people of the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his people shall return to the people of Israel. In other words, the Messiah, the one that's going to save them, he's not coming right now. Assyria is on the doorstep. Your, your town, your city, your capital is about to be overrun. Your people are about to be taken into captivity. People are going to get killed. And the Messiah, he's not coming right now. For a period of time, God is going to give up his people to their enemies until the day that the Messiah is born. And that is exactly what happened. Because the Assyrians come along, they wipe out Jerusalem, they wipe out the kingdom of Judah, they take all of the people into exile, and they leave behind the, the remnants of the people to, to suffer and squalor. And over time, the Assyrian oppressors will give way to the Babylonian oppressors, who will rule the Jews for another 200 years. And then the, the Babylonians, they give way to the, the Greek oppressors who rule the Jews for another 100 and 
70 years. And after the Greeks go away, the, the Jews get an opportunity to rule themselves for about 100 years. But because they've been ruled by so many people, they're a disaster. They're their own worst enemy. And then ultimately, after the Jews rule themselves, the Romans come along and they rule them during the time of Jesus. And through all of that, through 700 years, twice the amount of time that the United States of America has even existed, well beyond that, the people suffer. But a day would arrive when Micah's prophecy would be ultimately fulfilled through the birth of a baby born in a manger, born in Bethlehem, whose name is Jesus. Look at what Matthew 2 tells us. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, I want you to notice carefully what actually happens here. There's this king. His name is, is King Herod. There's actually a line of kings by the name of Herod. This particular one gets uh, called Herod the Great. He's a Roman-appointed ruler over the region of Palestine, which is uh, what we would call the nation of Israel right now, the modern day of Israel, a little bit bigger than that, actually. And, and they've made him, the Romans have made King Herod king over the Jews. Now, Herod is going through life, and he's doing what ancient kings do. He, he's got these huge building programs going on. Matter of fact, he's the, the king who builds the, the temple in Jerusalem. And it's this magnificent structure. He, he is promoting literature, He's promoting the arts. He's got this uh, uh, amazing uh, sporting activities happening all throughout the, the nation or the area of Palestine. He gets married, not once, not twice, but ten times. To those ten women, he fathers 15 kids. That's a lot of women, that's a lot of kids. And he thinks that to himself. This is a lot of women. This is a lot of kids. So he tires of one of them. And he murders one of the women. And the two boys that were his boys that were born to this woman that he killed find out that the king has killed their mother. And so they plot to kill the king. He finds out about it. He kills his boys. And as if this guy doesn't have enough drama in his life, out of nowhere, a group of strangers comes from the east showing up looking for a baby 
who they say is king of the Jews. Herod's like, what are you talking about? I'm the king of the Jews. Who, who are you guys? Where did you get this idea from? So what he does is he gathers together all of the Jewish religious leaders in an effort to figure out what in the world are these clowns talking about? And it's at this point that the Jewish religious leaders recite for King Herod a 700-year-old prophecy which is recorded in Micah. Now think about that for a minute. For 700 years... The Jews, they're living in the midst of sin and despair. As a result of their rejection of God and good, God's commands, God turns them over to be oppressed by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Seven centuries have they suffered, but God has not left them without hope. For seven centuries, these people have clung to this promise. They don't know when it's going to happen. And they've suffered. And then one day, a group of unknown astronomers, scholars, wise men, magi, call them what you want. They're not Jews. But they show up looking for a baby who has been born king of the Jews, the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God. Herod, he is blown away. The religious leaders, they're blown away. The people of Jerusalem, they're blown away right under their noses without anybody knowing it. Hope has arrived in the form of a baby born to an obscure poor teenage virgin, Mary, in an obscure manger in an obscure town surrounded by a bunch of obscure shepherds. And that hope that showed up had a plan. Look at verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flocks in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This baby would grow to be a man. And his name would be Jesus, and he would not only be a king, the prophet tells us, but he would also be a shepherd. Isn't that amazing? He's a, he's a king, one who reigns in glory and majesty, one who is completely unlike any of us, one who is other, far greater than any that he rules. Yet at the same time, he's a shepherd. One who is nearby, one who lives in the midst of his sheep, one who guides and feeds and leads and cares for and protects. But it doesn't stop there. This baby isn't going to be just some shepherd king. No, he would be a special shepherd king. One who would lead in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. In other words, he's going to be God in human flesh. Completely mind-blowing. And those who come to him, they, they dwell secure, they live in peace, which is so much better than living in the midst of sin and despair. So what do we do with all of this? 
How do you and I respond to a shepherd king? What does that look like? Well, folks, it's not very complicated, actually. We can either embrace Jesus as our shepherd king, or we can reject him. Sadly, some of us do the latter. We reject them. Some of us have become so comfortable living in the midst of our sin and despair. We simply, we don't know anything different. And if you catch us at an honest moment when we're not trying to be defensive or prideful, we'll admit it. We'll admit that living like this isn't pleasant. But it's all we know. And it really doesn't require a whole lot of us. We seemingly get to call the shots and make our own decisions and chart our own course. And, 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 and we really kind of enjoy the, the perceived freedom even when the results of that perceived freedom hurt us and hurt other people. But the catch is that the freedom that we think that we're actually living in is not freedom at all. It's perceived freedom. And Jesus' best friend, Peter, who was acquainted with lots of sin and despair, folks, he said this, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And we would do well to remember that sin is slavery. It is not freedom. And when we choose to live in sin, we choose to live in slavery to a horrible taskmaster named Satan who wants nothing more than to destroy us. And sadly, some of us know that all too well. Fortunately, some of us do the former. Some of us embrace Jesus as our shepherd king. Now, what in the world does that actually look like? Well, the late pastor and author Tim Keller, way back in 2007, in a Christmas message that he wrote focused on Micah chapter 5, he suggested four things about how we embrace Jesus as our shepherd king. I want to share those with you here. First, and I would add foremost, is that we believe in his death. In the weeks leading up to Jesus' death on the cross, this is what he said. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You see, embracing Jesus as our, our shepherd king begins with the recognition that out of his infinite love for us, he, he died for us. Jesus didn't die to pay a penalty for his own sins because he was sinless. 
Jesus died to pay the penalties for my sin and to pay the penalties for your sin. Now, who in the world does that? Who actually loves like that? What, what kind of person is that that, that that does any of that? You see, we love Jesus and we follow Jesus and we embrace Jesus as shepherd king, not because we're forced to do it. We do it because we are overwhelmed by the sacrifice that he has made. That's why we love him. We don't love him for any other reason than that. We love him because he loved us so much that he died for us. And, and we follow him willfully and joyfully because who in the world does that? The second way we embrace Jesus, and this is a toughie, is we obey his word. If Jesus is truly our shepherd king, we need to do what he says. Tim Keller has this great quote in this message. He says this, a pen of sheep is not a democracy. The sheep don't all get a vote. What the shepherd says goes. He's the one who is in charge. That's the same of any kingdom. The king makes the rules. The subject follows the rules. We will never truly embrace Jesus as shepherd king until we obey his commands. And if you're like me, guys and ladies, I regularly blow it. I regularly blow it. I want to obey. I want to follow. But, but that, that part of me, that old Mike Leonzo, the flesh, it comes out more times than, than not. But blowing it, that's not the issue. It's what we do when we blow it. It's we own our sin. We repent of our sin. And, and we strive to obey God the next time. That's what ultimately matters. The blowing it is nothing compared to what the recovery is. We're all going to mess up. It's how we recover that really matters. And our sin, you know what our sin really is? It is a reminder of, of how much we need Jesus. If, if we come to faith in Christ and we become completely sinless, we very quickly don't think we need Jesus anymore. But if we keep messing up like I keep messing up, I know I need Jesus more and more every single day. Now, the third and fourth, they go hand in hand. We stop worrying and we start expecting. I would have never come up with this on my own. This is why Tim Keller was a PhD, best selling author, and I got a master's degree from Weinbrenner Theological Seminary in Nowhere, Ohio. <laughs> when you and I worry, we're saying, I know what's best. I know how things should play out. 
And if they don't play out the way that I think they should play out, then really bad things are going to happen. And when we do that, when we're in the midst of worry, you know what we're ultimately doing? We're ultimately assuming the position of God is what we're doing. We're taking the place of God, and we attempt to be our own God. All kinds of things bad happen. Bad stuff happens. But when we embrace Jesus as our shepherd Lord, we can surrender all of our feeble attempts to, to control everything, and we can surrender to the confidence that God knows what he's doing despite the circumstances. How many times have we been there and we've worried like crazy, like, I'm losing my mind. This has got to work. If this doesn't happen, everything's going to fall apart. And then God comes along and his plan is so much bigger than better than anything that we could have thought about. And it doesn't mean it doesn't come out without pain or struggle. But if we would have went down the other road, we're in a crazy mess. Now, if you struggle with this, be encouraged by Jesus' words in Matthew 6. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added onto you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And in the place of worrying, we need to start expecting. If the infinite God of the, 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 the universe could take on the humanity of a baby in a manger, if he could give sight to the blind and cause the, the, the lame to walk and the deaf to hear and the mute to speak, if he can cleanse the leper, if he can walk on water, if he can forgive sin, if he can raise people from the dead, folks, there is absolutely nothing that he can do, not do. Believe in his promises. Trust in his provision. Surrender your will to his will because according to the words that the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary when she looked at him and said, how in the world is this possible that I can be a virgin and conceive? What does the angel say? Nothing is impossible with God. Amen, hallelujah, and a sermon. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you, and uh, Father, we confess that we are a fickle people. Lord, you offer us a banquet, and Lord God, we choose to eat out of a dumpster. God, would you forgive us for that? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this uh, beautiful Advent season. Thank you for the opportunity, Heavenly Father, that we get to, to focus uh, our minds on your first coming. 
And Father, would you prepare us for the day that your second coming occurs? Lord, would you help us to uh, be quick to, to listen to you? Would you help us, Heavenly Father, to obey you and to love you? Lord, would you help us to, to love others, to share with others the good works that, that you have done in our lives so that they, Heavenly Father, one day might confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that your son Jesus is Lord. And Lord, that they might ultimately be saved. Do that great work that only you can do. And now, Heavenly Father, as we prepare to, to take this offering, Lord God, would you uh, help uh, the leadership of this church to be wise stewards of these resources. Help us, Heavenly Father, to be super generous to uh, the community. Help us to proclaim the gospel far and wide. Help us never to think much of ourselves, but to always think much of you. Lord, thank you for those who give in this place, who give in the mail. Thank you for those who give online. And Lord, for those who desire to give but struggle, I pray, Heavenly Father, that, that Lord, you would empower them in one way or another to be generous to you. Father, thank you for this time. And it's through your son's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.